This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn and it's a pleasure as always to have your company. The federal election campaign is now in its second week in case you haven't noticed. Last week we spoke about the subgenre of election podcasts. This week we're talking about a growing problem in elections all over the world, the spread of disinformation. Fake news, real news, disinformation and misinformation. It's enough to make you dizzy and I haven't even mentioned political spin yet. This year, the Australian Electoral Commission launched a disinformation register to debunk mistruths about the election process. Meanwhile, newsrooms will use a new disinformation tracking and detection software funded by the Judith Nielsen Institute. We look to journalists to discern fact from fiction. So in this episode, we ask them about fact checking during an election and the ever growing issue of disinformation. To discuss this and more, we're joined by Sushi Daz, an author and journalist for nearly 30 years, including 20 with the age. She's currently the chief of staff of RMIT ABC Fact Check and the assistant director of RMIT Fact Lab. Sushi Daz, a warm welcome back to Fourth Estate. Thank you. Margaret Simons is also with us. She's a freelance investigative journalist and the author of a number of political biographies, including on Penny Wong and Malcolm Fraser. Her long-form journalism can often be found in The Monthly, The Age and Guardian Australia. She's also an honorary principal fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Margaret Simons, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Yes. And a familiar friend of Fourth Estate, Amanda Kopp. She's the political reporter for the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia's National Radio News. She's also spent the last week travelling with Scott Morrison and the rest of the media contingent who are covering him on the election. Amanda Kopp, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Thank you for having me. Well, look, let's get right to it. So what's the difference between disinformation and misinformation and can the two blur together at times. I'm going to go to you, Sushi, as your uh, fact-checking expert here. So when people share uh, uh, misinformation, um, they don't realise what they're sharing is um, false or misleading information and they sort of do it inadvertently. And they might be trying to do it because they want to help help someone or they want to feel part of um, a community. Disinformation, on the other hand, is where people are intentionally creating false or misleading information um, and spreading that. And they might do that because they want to make money or they want to have political influence or or just to maliciously uh, cause uh, trouble or harm. Fake news has been with us now for a few years. Do you think it has the same impact it once did? And or, or do you think we as consumers of news and information are becoming more savvy to it? 
I think people are more aware that there is uh, misinformation and disinformation out there in the information ecosystem, if I can put it like that. Uh, I think you only have to think uh, a few years back and fact-checking was not a word or a term that was generally used. It's now a household term. Everybody roughly knows what fact-checking is. Um, so I think there is um, an increased awareness of uh, false um, information floating around, for sure. Whether we all know how to deal with it or how to spot it is um, another matter. Margaret, in last night's Sky News leader debate, the moderator asked if if both leaders would stop the scare campaigns. Do you think scare campaigns count as disinformation? And what role do you think the media has to fact check them? Yeah, I think uh, scare campaigns can qualify as disinformation. There is usually a tiny little grain of truth behind them. Normally, they'll be seizing on something which the other side said at some time or something they failed to say and then building around that. Um, I'm not sure how effective they are. I suspect they do swing a small number of votes, probably among people who are not all that media literate, but are directly affected by whatever the subject of the scare campaign is. But, yeah, I think they can qualify as disinformation, for sure, meeting Sushi's definition. Sushi, I'm sure you're quite busy fact-checking at the moment. What are you currently keeping an eye out for during this election? Well, we're looking at a lot of things. Um, Obviously, um, there's anything that relates to uh, voting and the um, electoral process. Um, As we know, disinformation sort of generally aims to discourage and confuse uh, voters and to undermine public confidence in the electoral process, um, you know, claims of rigged elections, that kind of stuff. Um, You know, we've already seen false claims about Australia um, apparently um, using the Dominion voting system, which we're not. Um, There's also been claims about um, pencils on ballots leading to uh, tampering. So it's all about um, sowing a seed of doubt. I mean, we've also seen um, claims about um, how unvaccinated people wouldn't be allowed to go into uh, polling places. Um, So anything and everything to do with the actual voting and electoral process is important during um, the election campaign. And then, of course, there's all the usual stuff that we hear from each side throwing, um, you know, sort of uh, things around. And we saw that in the 2019 election as well. And I think this time around, we're really looking at this. um, So the cashless welfare card that mm-hmm. we're told um, uh, uh, that um, the Libs are going to introduce. Then we've got the uh, Medicare cuts that apparently Labour is uh, going to intru- um sorry, the Liberals are going to introduce, according to Labour. As you might remember, last time in the election, we had death taxes and Medicare mm-hmm. were the two uh, main uh, problems. And I think it does get really difficult um, to to sort of separate what is misinformation and disinformation with what uh, the way the political parties spin um, their stuff. So there's this sort of, uh, you know, that in-between bit where there's sometimes an overlap. Um, You know, at the moment we're hearing that Labour is soft on China. 
Um, and you might have seen those pictures of that red truck mm-hmm. going around with a picture of Xi Jinping voting for Labour. Mm-hmm. I think Advance Australia um, um, has been behind that. Now, strictly speaking, I suppose, I mean, you could talk about what's what's the misinformation there. There's no actual claim that we can fact check there, um, but it's but that sort of picture, that image is all out there to create a sort of a feel. Um, and, and I think that that's where things are tricky because it's not strictly misinformation, but then, you know, it's all part of a scare campaign as well, which, of course, is as old as the hills when it comes to elections. Have you noticed much uh, how, in, in terms of fact-checking, how much do you think it's changed in this election compared to the, the 2019 election? Have you noticed a change in the way that disinformation and, and misinformation is spread or, or where it's coming from as such? I think from my observation is that everything's happening faster. That's what I think I've noticed more than anything else. I mean, it's always the same old, same old with the um, misinformation and disinformation, but it's just all happening so much faster. And it's not just, you know, you're seeing it on Facebook or you're seeing it on Twitter. It's it's sort of going places faster. So it might start on Facebook and then it's quickly on Instagram before you know it's on Twitter and then the mainstream media is picking up on it as well. So it all just is travelling much faster. That That's, I, I would say, the main thing that I've I've seen. Amanda, we're very lucky to have you here because you have been on the bus, basically, covering the election. What are the challenges? You've been, you spent the last week on uh, Scott Morrison's, the media pack that were um, uh, travelling around with Scott Morrison. What are the challenges when it comes to fact-checking politicians' promises, as well as, you know, the claims that they make so quickly while you're on the road? Yeah, so I mean, I think that the the main problem that I find is that everything is just moving at a breakneck pace. Um, So, you know, you wake up in the morning early, you're on the bus, you've got to pack your bags, leave the hotel, you know, you're straight to kind of job number one, job number two, factory number one, factory number two. um, And, you know, they throw a press conference in there at some point, um, give you some facts, maybe send out some kind of information sheet. and then you know you're back on the bus again and on a on an aeroplane. And when you send when you say send you some facts, I'm guessing it's it's their facts though. Spin. Mm. <laughs> I should say send send you some spin. Um, yeah, so I guess it's the, the issue that I find is is really just the pace. And you know if you don't have a team back at base, because you know for me it's it's really I'm just running solo on on this entire thing. Um, so it's difficult to kind of you know fit in legitimate fact checking when you're racing around the country hitting multiple states in the same day um and trying to you know bang out stories at the same time it's very difficult to kind of do that basic fact checking stuff that you would otherwise do when you were in the office i think the other thing as well is particularly when you're on one bus so i was on the prime minister's bus is you have very little um uh, sight of of the opposition's bus um, because you're so kind of tied up with the commitments for one side. So I think, you know, aside from fact-checking, I think also the balance is also an issue as well, which I think is why it's good when media companies have someone on both sides, so they've kind of got an insight onto onto both sides of politics rather than just one, which is which is what I've had to do just because of um, funding arrangements. <laughs> of course, of course, and it it should be said that in the next uh, few weeks you're going to be joining the Albo Media Pack as it is, and yeah, to balance uh, it out. <laughs> yes, to balance it out, and also the Nationals. 
yes, uh, that one I think I'm looking forward to the most. <laughs> it should be interesting, no doubt. Sushi, you were at one time the state political reporter for The Age, so you can probably understand uh, a lot of where Amanda's coming from, having to report so quickly on the fly, covering state parliament and also state the elections of state politicians. Can you relate to what Amanda's saying? Uh, well, firstly, when I was a state political reporter, that was about 500 BC, so it was a very long time ago, <laughs> um, uh, and it was under the Kennett government that I was there. Um, oh, Jeff I Kennett, do, right. Yeah, I, I do understand um, the uh, problems that daily uh, journalists face because everything, yes, is so incredibly fast um, and there's only so much a human can do um, in uh, in, a, in any um, short period of time. Um, but I think I think what's really important, um, I think, to point out is that uh, not daily journalism is about the uh, daily movements, if you like. Okay, and of course that is invariably going to include a little bit of he said and then she said. Okay, that that's just going to happen. With fact-checking, we're not always uh, driven by um, that quick sort of turnaround, looking at what the daily movements were. We're actually just taking a deeper dive into um, the data that sometimes is used to put a certain point of view. Um, We're examining really closely the words that they use. Um, uh, that politicians use, um, and and also just looking at whether they're cherry picking certain um, details. So it's a it's a different kind of journalism. Um, but I totally relate to how difficult it must be when you're on the road doing uh, what you have to do when you're um, a daily journalist. And I'm I'm actually <laughs> I'm actually thankful that I don't have to do that because um, uh, it is such a tough job. And I think it's just it's getting tougher and tougher in many uh, ways because of the speed that everything travels these days. Yeah, there's a lot of people actually um, who have been in the gallery for for a lot longer than I have who who, who say that. Um, you know, they say that back in the day, um, you know, that people only had to write one story a day for the paper then the following day, whereas now because everything is online, you're constantly having to update stories. Most of the time when people are out on the road, every journalist that I was with was tweeting, putting things on Instagram, writing live blogs and filing articles all at the same time. Um, so just to have all of that crunched into, into one day for one person um, certainly makes things difficult when you've got to take a bit more of a deeper dive to, to actually confirm whether, um, you know, what, what the basis of, of a claim or, or, or a policy announcement is. Having said that, um, AAP, for example, um, I started my reporting career at AAP, and um, I know even in those days, and that was a really long time ago, even then we were filing uh, more than, you know, one story a day, and and your deadline was not at the end of the day like it used to be on a newspaper, um, but it was, um, you know, a rolling deadline throughout the day with AAP, sometimes just filing snaps um, and short things. So, yeah, um, that speed has always been there for a, a wire journalist, but I appreciate what you're saying. Um, you know, these days you're doing more than just uh, reporting. You're putting a lot of packages together um, and you're using a technology uh, that's different as well. And, and that everything's just speeded up. And you, you're a, a one, a one, uh, one man band, one woman band. Um. <laughs> you're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network. This week we're talking about fact checking during the federal election with Sushi Daz, Margaret Simons, and Amanda Kopp. Sushi, 
how can fact-checking tools like the Judith Nielsen Institute's Mosaic Project support journos and, and newsrooms as well during the election campaign? Well, we're going to find out is the answer to that. <laughs> um, so uh, at the moment, RMIT Fact Lab is um, going to be working um, with the Institute um, of Strategic Dialogue um, with the support of the Judith Nielsen Institute. And essentially, we're going to have access to software that will help us uh, to reduce the spread of um, misinformation and disinformation online. Um, the way that it's going to work, um, I can't really go into the exact detail of how it's going to work, but I can tell you that we get access to this. It's, it's international detection software, if I can put it like that. And it detects and tracks the spread of false and misleading information um, in the lead up to the federal election. Um, this technology has been used in um, German uh, election campaigns and also the uh, uh, US election campaign. It's just essentially it's going to help us map the spread of um, harmful information online. So, and of course, what our role is watching accounts mm. by MPs, international political actors extremist groups. Um, I think we'll know soon whether um, this kind of technology helps us immediately locate where bad information is coming from and then tracking it very quickly and then perhaps getting ahead of it as much as we can so that we're onto it before it blows up. Um, and I think this technology will also be useful post-election where we can look back and then sit down and actually analyse the mapping. And Do a then bit of an autopsy. Yeah, an right. autopsy, that's right. Because misinformation and disinformation spread so quickly and, and widely, by the time fact-checkers step in, though, with their correction, it, it might not have the same impact in terms of how quickly and widely you know, the fact-check is spread. How are journalists really supposed to compete with that? And how do how do you think social media algorithms play into this? Well, well, they're responsible for a lot of um, the problem. Okay, uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, we know that a lot of um, bad information spreads on Facebook. So this is partly why we um, at RMIT Fact Lab we're working with Meta, um, and the way it works is this. Meta uses its algorithms to surface the misinformation. They then give us access to the, those posts. We uh, debunk them as quickly as we can, and we publish them. And once they're published, we then supply um, that published material, the URL effectively, to uh, Meta. Meta then attaches that URL to the offending post um, and puts a sort of warning tag on the uh, post. So anyone reading it will see something that says this piece of information has been fact-checked. Do you want to read it before you start spreading it to other places? And also what Meta does is it downgrades that post in people's feeds. So I think working with Meta to that extent is, is a small step uh, towards getting that bad information um, downgraded. Um, so that's something that we're, we're attempting to do. I mean, I, you know, there's no way uh, small fact-checking organisations, you know, and we're talking about we're a group of 10 people, um, 10 mm. or 12 people, mm. and the fire hose of misinformation, I mean, it's just huge. So we do what we can, and a lot of it, I think, is um, not just putting correct information in the public domain, um, but it's also just in the process of doing that, raising awareness among the uh, 
citizenry, if I can put it like that, um, and, and not only raising awareness, but wherever possible, working with the big tech companies mm -hmm. to downgrade what they do. Ultimately, I think a lot of it is going to um, have to be dealt with by those uh, big tech companies. They are going to have to make um, allow journalists um, like fact checkers access to their algorithms and explain to us how they are um, set up and why they do the things that they do. They are going to have to take some responsibility for this. Getting into bed with um, fact checkers is one thing, um, but I think there's a lot more they probably can do um, uh, going forward. Amanda, do you think there's too much pressure on the media to cut through all of the misinformation? You know, should there be a great should there be a greater focus? Do you think on regulation and and social media bodies, like for example, with political advertisements? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a, that's one thing I think that some people don't realise is that there aren't really that many barriers um, preventing, or at least legal barriers preventing um, lies uh, or misleading information in political advertising. And I think picking up on something that Sushi was saying earlier, I think often the the problem, and I, and I think something that the AEC, um, the Australian Electoral Commission, has said themselves is that it's it's difficult to actually determine what is a lie or what is misleading in political advertising because, you know, one person, and I know, you know, ideally we would have this kind of overarching truth that, you know, you, you couldn't argue against. Um, but in reality, particularly when it comes to um, to, to politics and, and to policies, is that, you know, one person's truth is, is not someone else's. Mm. Um, and I think that the issue that often happens with these kinds of scare campaigns and, and policy debates is that there is there is a kernel of truth and then it just gets blown out of proportion and that becomes the, the misleading information and that becomes mm. the the lie so you know with labor saying that the liberal government is planning to expand the the cdc the the cashless debit card um to pensioners the government has said that that is not true. However, the government has said in the past that they are looking to expand that program. But they just haven't specified where they're expanding it. So it's that kernel of truth that then gets expanded um, and that becomes the the, the misleading um, issue. And again, if you want another example, the death taxes from, from last year, you know, the Liberals saying that Labor was going to introduce death taxes that wasn't part of their policy platform. However, senior people in, in Labor had suggested that as a possible idea years previously. Um, so, you know, the fact that it had come up in policy debate at some point then became the scare campaign. Getting a little bit away from disinformation and misinformation, I think another really important aspect when it comes to covering elections and political journal political journalism. And Margaret, you wrote so uh, eloquently about this in the in the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald this week. Uh, you talked about political journalism and election coverage as sport race journalism or horse race journalism, I should say. And, you know, I quote, political journalism is not or, or should not be like sport reporting. What about the topics neither side seem to want to talk about, such as the state of universities and tax reform and budget repair? Do you see this as an increasing problem when, when it comes to covering politics and election campaigns? Do you think we've really lost our way when it comes to talking about policy, talking about the issues that we should. We seem to 
be commentating or analysing who's ahead. You know, Albo's gaff the other week. That's really, you know, it was a huge gaff. All we could talk about was the gaff instead of the fact that he probably just froze on the moment for for all we know. We didn't really talk. He, he gave a whole speech in which he was talking about policy, but we didn't really focus on that at all. It was completely overshadowed by the gaff and where that put him in the race. I don't think horse race reporting or, you know, reporting politics as though it was sport, I don't think that's new. It's certainly been a feature of journalism as long as I've been a journalist. I think it got worse with the growth of public opinion polls through the late 80s and into the 90s as the art of public opinion polling became more sophisticated and and more accurate and the newspapers began to commission their own polls and that became, you know, a huge focus of political reporting, partly because it was taken to be a sort of connection with reality, what people were actually thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, and partly because it was accurate for the most part, increasingly accurate, and so it sort of had that sort of crystal ball appeal to it. Um, but I think, you know, they gradually became the focus of the entire reporting of the campaign in a way which I think is detrimental. I'm not saying it shouldn't be done at all, but um, I would much rather see areas of policy discussion. And political journalists will often say when you make that criticism, oh, but the politicians won't talk about policy. They'll only talk in images and soundbites and so on. Well, I regard that as a pretty poor excuse. There's nothing to stop journalists right now, for example, from, say, doing a a good dispassionate analysis of Anthony Albanese's time in the infrastructure portfolio, which Mm -hmm. is his main claim to economic expertise. To take your point, that would be much more revealing than whether he can or can't pull the unemployment figures to mind at a particular moment. I mean, I thought that was a bad gap, but nowhere near as revealing as his record in government, which is there. I mean, it wouldn't be hard to write about that, but instead of which everybody concentrates on the, you know, the crazy rush of the bus, as Amanda has described, and that mitigates against proper consideration of the capacities of the competing candidates and their teams. I mean, the other thing is that we... This has been a little bit better this week, I have to say, than it was in the first week. We're beginning to hear from other members of the competing teams other than just the leaders. But, you know, in in foreign affairs, for example, which is a topic this week, you know, Penny Wong and Maurice Payne, why can't we have a debate between them? The media could host such a debate and invite them and use an empty chair if they don't turn up. Well, the uh, well, the National Press Club is setting up a few uh, different debates, and they have. They did say today that I think it was Laura Tingle uh, said today, as she is president of the National Press Club, said today that uh, they had invited the foreign minister and shadow foreign minister, but um, Maurice Payne had declined. So they're still waiting back on an answer from from Senator Wong, I believe. Uh, Amanda, look, you're on the campaign. uh, You're on the campaign trail, so you know what it's like. Uh, how do you think, from from what you viewed, how do you think other journalists go in, in, in terms of holding politicians to account when it comes to policy? Yeah, so I guess the interesting thing that I have found being out on the road is particularly in the first week, you have politicians who are, I guess, resetting in terms of getting into election mode, but also journalists are, are kind of getting into that mode as well. Um, so for the first two days, it felt like a lot of the questions that we were throwing at the Prime Minister in, in, in the press pack who was travelling with him were very scattergun. Um, and politicians love that because it means that, you know, they can kind of avoid answering the question on the first one and then someone moves on to a different topic and they just you know they just they just roll on and so and so the the question never actually gets answered um but once we did that 
two days in a row, we all kind of sat down and we're like, okay, we're getting nothing out of out of the Prime Minister and this is useless for everyone. Um, so, you know, what are our kind of key topics that we're going to hit him on? On, on this particular day. And, and, and that day was, was when we asked a lot about the um, a Federal Integrity Commission. He was appearing with Bridget Archer, who was that Liberal member who crossed the floor to support the crossbench um, on, a, on a Federal Inte- Integrity Commission. So it made sense. Um, and, you know, we essentially had a day where almost every single question was about an Integrity Commission. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, uh, Scott Morrison being the, <laughs> the Teflon man that he is, um, you know, nothing really stuck despite our efforts. Um, but I, I guess when it comes to this sort of thing, I, I feel like, and I've had this discussion with a, with a, a bunch of colleague, uh, colleagues, particularly um, in the last week that we've had in terms of those gotcha questions. And I feel like we've sort of come to the conclusion that it's this strange sort of chicken and egg moment where on the one hand, I think that there's a, an impression in, in the media that often audiences aren't necessarily open to doing those kind of long reads um, about those policy discussions, going really in depth um, in, in particular policy areas. But also when you are asking questions of these politicians about their policy platforms, often they just don't answer the question. Um, you know, they're not kind of sitting there being like, you know, okay, yes, here's the detail and here's how much it's going to cost and this is our plan and, you know, all that sort of thing. Really, it's just them kind of trying to get a few lines that they know are going to go on, on the TV news and leaving it at that. Um, and so it's difficult as a journalist when you already know that if you ask a question, asking them to explain their policy platform, that you're not really going to get an answer that you're going to be able to use and so you kind of fall into this trap of of going for those gotcha moments because you know that it's something that you're going to be able to use in your reporting so it's this hard sort of thing where everyone's sort of trapping themselves and I guess that those sort of dynamics don't necessarily or aren't necessarily known by the wider public in terms of of why uh, why journalists ask those questions in the first place yeah I think if I can just cop in there I think Amanda's given a very accurate description and it's one of the reasons that I've been arguing for many years now that um, the bus should not be the focus of most of the political coverage. I think it's you've got to be there, obviously, I'm not saying it should be ignored, but I don't think it is an effective way of holding to account. It's all about covering announcements and perhaps to a certain degree vibe. Um, but, you know, if you want to hold people to account, you actually need to be talking to people who are not on the bus. Um, in the policy community, um, you know, the profile I'm suggesting of Albanese's time as infrastructure minister, you know, he'd be talking to public servants and people in industry and uh, political colleagues and the opposition, you know, you'd be hitting the phone or talking to people face to face. And you can't do that on the bus. As Amanda's described it, there was no time for anything other than just the chase. I think when journalists do get into that um, gotcha game, as it's been described by Amanda, that is when you get the kind of journalism that often results in, well, I always think of it as the equivalent of running down the road, waving your arms around, going, look what they've done now, you know, that kind of journalism. <laughs> I think that's what you get if you end up with the gotcha. That If you start with the gotcha thing, that's where you end up with the sort of the hands waving around in the air, um, shouty kind of journalism. And that's so... It's unfortunate. It doesn't help anybody anywhere. But it's so hard to break out of it too. I mean, how how do we start to break out of it? You know, 
And the scary thing as well, which I think Margaret touched on in her article this week, was that, you know, as much as we can kind of discuss the the media aspect of it is, you know, when we're talking about politics, particularly in a federal election, you know, this is the sort of reporting that is informing people about who they should vote for. Um, and so I think that the thing that journalists really should be reflecting on is the way is is the way that they're reporting on these kinds of issues really beneficial to informing voters about how they should vote? Um, and, you know, these sort of things of, you know, the fact that we reported so much on the Albanese gaffe, you know, of course we saw in news poll the following week that his support had, had fallen, right? But then, you know, you kind of wonder, and Margaret made this exact point, that you wonder if we hadn't reported on something that is in the grand scheme of things quite small, whether that would have affected the polls in the opposite direction or, or, or not at all. Yeah, and, you know, while there was a drop in Albanese's personal approval rating, it's interesting that all the polls are basically saying that uh, the two-party preferred has barely shifted. I mean, they're all having to dress it up to try and get a news story out of it. <laughs> but, um, but the, you know, the real story behind the polls is that, in fact, nothing shifted very much and we still have a huge number of undecided voters who will probably decide the election. Um so, you know, I mean, this is one of the problems with polls. Quite often, they actually, there isn't anything new in them. They're within the margin of error or something of that sort. But the news company has paid a huge amount of money to have the poll. And so they end up making a front page story out of it by fair means or foul. And, you know, I don't know if that qualifies as disinformation. It's not very helpful information. It's sort of a horse race without a reality check, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think... You know, I, I really do think that the the chase um, of on the bus is, um, you know, should be a small part of the reporting. It's as I say, it's essential. Somebody's got to be there. At least AAP AAP has to be there, and we need to keep firmly in mind why we have election campaigns. You know, why do we have a campaign rather than just suddenly saying, "Oh, we'll all vote tomorrow." You know, you have a campaign because the idea is to expose the capacities of the team and the candidates and their policies um, to public scrutiny. And the only purpose of the journalists really is to assist that process. And if you're not assisting that process, then what are you doing? I mean, there's some entertainment to the horse race, I suppose, but (laughs) I guess in the sense of a soap opera, right? Yeah, rather watch MasterChef, you know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I'd like to thank uh, this week's guests, Sushi Daz. Thank you so much for joining us on Fourth Estate. Thank you for inviting me. Margaret Simons, thanks for joining us on Fourth Estate. It's a pleasure. Sorry. And Amanda Cobb, thank you so much for joining us on Fourth Estate. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. A big thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Many thanks to our producer, Marlene Even and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, stay safe, and we'll catch you next time on Fourth Estate. Mm-hmm.